Thank you. Is this, are these working? Yeah, okay. So, yeah, thank you very much. Um, so, yeah, Modern Forms is a, a relatively new art collection. Uh, it's owned by a gentleman called Hussam Atebi, whose company is also sponsoring uh, 154. Uh, so, fortunately, as part of that, Modern Forms has been able to uh, collaborate with 154 in an annual commission. And the first commission, we were very honoured to have Emeka uh, create a site-specific new sound piece called Abubedike. I think that's pronounced correct. Almost there. <laughs> Almost there, okay. Uh, which is uh, installed in the stamp stairs, and we'll talk about that um, during this talk. And yeah, and I think primarily we're going to be talking about Emeka's work. Um, so, Emeka, you've been described, just to start with some great uh, superlative <laughs> descriptions, you've been described as a pioneer of sound art on the African continent. I wondered how you relate to that description, <laughs> how, how that feels. Um, I'm honored to be described right now, but I don't think it's really uh, correct because uh, it sort of pushes this notion that uh, sound art is still something kind of developing on the continent. I mean, in terms of, uh, in the context of galleries and um, museums, maybe, but sound art is really part of our roots and culture. And um, you find sound art everywhere. You know, we come from a strong tradition of oral um, culture. And um, from the streets, from the hawkers on the streets, from the bus conductors in Lagos, everyone is a sound artist. So sure. it's probably a, a kind of misnomer. The, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, art always has these artificial yeah. definitions. And, the, you know, the separation between art and life is always uh, a questionable one. But the story of your... Uh, the origins of your sound art in this rarefied form that we find in museums and galleries, there's, um, the start's quite interesting because you, you, it started very serendipitously, I understand, through uh, an encounter with a gentleman called Hans Schurz. Schurz, yeah. Can you yeah. tell us about basically how you started making work around sound? All right. Um, I was traveling in Alexandria. I was traveling in Egypt in 2008, no, 2007, and I met a bunch of Egyptian artists that told me they were going to be in um, somewhere called Fayoum in February of 2008, and it was supposed to be a winter academy, an art space, and I was invited to come and hang out with them. So I went back, and um, but and at the academy, I think the the first lecture was was it called was it. Um about Sorry. oral soundscapes, right? So the well, spectrum. Yes, yes. well, well spectrum, he, when right? I went back there, this guy uh, from Austria, from uh, Vienna. Hans yeah. He was the guy in charge of the media class, and the media class was basically on audio, on sound, and it was called um, Audible Spectrum. So he, I never had that. I, I come from an artistic background. I studied graphic design in school, but, um, you know, when I think about sound, it's something I always connected with a visual, so, like, films, videos. I never... I, separated sound on its own. If I separate sound on its own, I'll think music. So he was able to do that separation. The class was called Audible Spectrum, and it was basically on sound and how to listen, how to open up your ears, how to record, and how to create stuff we are recording. And, um, and, your, and your first piece, I think, <laughs> wonderfully, your, your very first piece of uh, audio art you installed in the academy's toilets, I think. The right? bathroom, yeah. It's a big, so, it's a big bathroom. Very, <laughs> it's not what you think. Very hum <laughs> humble start for the work. No, what, what was the piece? Because I love the, uh, the story it was titled, of what it was. Uh, it was titled Lake Karun, and 
you know, Fayoum, it's a, there's this lake in Fayoum, and I think it's a kind of mythical lake that was mentioned in the Quran. I'm not well, it's, it's a real lake. There's yeah, a myth, it's a real lake. Yeah, uh, yeah. Myth but, you know, the myth is with this, uh, this rich king that was so, that was so uh, wicked that he got covered by water, right? Yeah, because so, that's what happens to wicked people. Exactly. Right? Yeah, I wish it could happen now. <laughs> no, but it was when I got to Fayoum. It was during the um, there's always this water politics in Egypt, and it was around that same period, right? And um, we had no running water for three days, so most times we were hanging out in Lake Fayoum, swimming, you know, to just clean up and stuff like that. But um, when I had to now make it work, I already had this connection with the lake, right? So I did most of the recordings around the lake on the boat with the oars, shot some videos there, and also with this whole situation with the bathroom, I set up the sound installation and the video piece in the bathroom. But I also kind of um, augmented the sound with t t running tap water droplets. So it's great that it's... So it's quite site-specific then. Sort of, yeah. And, so. then, um, and then you uh, go back to where you were living in uh, Lagos, yeah. you're from East Nigeria, and um, yeah. then you started working on basically a whole, whole project, really, isn't it? An expansive project, which is called Lagos Soundscapes. It was, it really. was, a, so it was, it was an accident. It was like, an accident. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah and how did that start? So you did that, but when you went, went back um, to Lagos after this experience, did you immediately think, I'm going to go and I'm going to start, I'm going to pioneer sound art no. on the African <laughs> continent? I, I, I wasn't thinking, I never thought I would be an artist, to be honest. I was just, um, I was just curious, more like, but... After Fayoum, I went back to Lagos and I sort of became more conscious of sound, right? Um, what Fayoum did for me or what Harald's class did for me was sort of to open up my ears. You know, I paid more attention to sounds around me and um, what actually triggered this whole Lagos soundscape project, which finally <laughs> made me a sound artist. Oh, and we should just say that this is what's playing in the background here, yeah, right? So this yeah. is... It's more intense than this, but we try to drop the volume and, and, a little bit. And if any, afterwards, in, there's a Modern Forms booth or room on the, on the first floor, and um, the Lagos Soundscapes is, or some, you know, one, one, uh, one of the soundscapes is playing permanently in that room if you want to go and hear that afterwards. So sorry, I was interrupting you. No, it's fine. Um, so I, I'm back in Lagos. I... I, um, I was more conscious of sound, I was more conscious of listening, paid more attention, but then uh, it was an interesting call that changed this whole dynamics because a friend of mine that lived in Abuja was visiting Lagos, he didn't want me to know he was in Lagos, so he was calling me on the phone and, you know, like 30 seconds, 40 seconds into the talk, I'm like, are you in Lagos? I was like, how do you know? And it was really that I was paying close attention now. I'm beginning to hear the city differently. And I was able to hear the city on this, uh, you know, through his phone. And uh, I knew he was in Lagos. But that was also an interesting moment for me to think about recording the city and um, listening to it. So I just started, uh, I, got a, I got a sound recorder and just started recording. Did you know what you were, what you were, when you started the recordings? No. Did you have an endpoint in mind? No, no, no. I just, just found recording? I just found it interesting that you could <clears throat> go through the city, record the sounds, then go back to your studio and hear stuff that you didn't hear when you were recording or when you were out there. Like you know, you you were paying more attention to the city, but in your studio, there was no visual distraction. Lagos were in a hurry, from one point to the other. So like we just navigate through the city, subconsciously aware of the sound because you also listen out to those dangerous sounds and stuff like that. But 
you know, that triggered the recordings from, for Lagos. And so, because it's interesting, because I think we're going to talk about um, the different receptions of the Lagos soundscapes from showing it in <laughs> Lagos, which is so the very first um, exhibition of that was in, was that 2009, right? 2009, February. Yeah. Okay, in the, yeah. um, in the African, African Artists Foundation. Yeah, yeah. so that, that was, and obviously uh, that's Lagosians who are listening to the sounds of their own city. <laughs> And well, then since then, that piece has now travelled to a lot well, of different, mainly European um, contexts. But what was the first reaction of, um, of the audience to whom you know, the sound was, was a local sound? You know, like with Lagos Soundscape, it's a project. It's not one specific sound because the city is made up of multi-layers. I mean, the city is all, sure. all about sounds, right? So what I do is I record different places, different moments, different times. It all sounds differently, right? But when I, when I set up the Lagos soundscapes in Lagos, in the gallery space, you know, for the Lagosians, there was really no um, psychological or, you know, like, connect. it was just that it sounded cool to listen to the city inside a room. In this rarefied atmosphere. You know, like, uh, we're not in a bus, we're not driving through, we're not walking through, but we're in this art space listening to the city. It's something they never considered, so it was cool for them. So the reactions of Lagosians to the sound when I first put it up was just all about cool, you know, like something new, something different, right? But but then abroad the context is extremely different, right? To the or how the work is. When, when I when I started, uh, you know, like when I when I had the idea to export Lagos to other cities, especially European cities, I was thinking more of the migrant, like something that would be different in a place, right? And um, it, I was more I was more interested in how Europeans will react to this sound, you know. Europe is, Europe is quiet, if you ask me, because when I started traveling around Europe, I had problems sleeping, and it was because it was quiet, right? So, <laughs> so. Particularly in Germany and Switzerland. Yeah, particularly there. Yeah. So, but um, I mean, the, the, the moment things kind of shifted for me was um, in Helsinki in 2010, I think, or 11. Uh, I can't remember the exact day, but it was for Kiasma, the Ars 11 exhibition, and I'm setting up this installation outside the museum, you know, the facade of the museum, they had this, like, roof speakers that was used by Brian Eno for his kite installation and the speakers. So, um, broadcasting into the city? Yes, not like, around well, the environment. Around the environment, the museum. It's, uh, it's really a funny kind of uh, setup because the sound kind of, like, spread out, right? So, um, and it's the Lagos, it's part of the Lagos soundscapes. That's what I put up there. I had two installations there. One was outside that was broadcasting outside and one was on headphones inside the museum. But when I finished, I did the outside piece first, then went back to the museum to set up the, the uh, headphone piece. And I got called that someone, you know, someone wants to talk to me. And I go downstairs. Uh, it was this guy, at first I didn't know he was Nigerian, but they said, oh, this guy wants to talk to you. And, you know, he just like hugged me and just held me. And, um, <laughs> For a long time. <laughs> yeah, he was very emotional. <laughs> like, I just didn't understand what happened. You know? what, what was happening? So I was like, what did I do? You know? <laughs> but um, he practically told me, like, he's been, in, he's been in Helsinki for three years. He has two jobs. He goes to, um, he goes to school. So he's like working and studying all the time. He's really busy. And, um, he normally comes close to the museum to get a bus to go to school or to go to work. I forgot which one. And this day, he was doing, he just came to repeat what he was used to doing every day. And he's hearing the sound of Lagos everywhere. And he's looking around, he's seeing white people. <laughs> <laughs> so 
he, he knew it was, I mean, he wasn't in Lagos, but for him, the first thing that came to his mind was he's having a mental breakdown. Like, uh, you know, I'm working too hard, I'm going to school, and I, I haven't been home in three years. Then another funny thing he told me was maybe the parents were trying to bring him back home with voodoo, you know? So, so, so you know, to make the matter worse, he calls his friends that live in Helsinki, like, you know, I, I can hear Lagos here. And they told him, don't go to work today, just get a, get a taxi, come back home, we'll take care of you. You don't have to go, have to, go to work. You know, but it's, uh, it was quite interesting because the museum was close by and somehow he's like, okay, I need to figure this out because there's no way I can leave this place without figuring this out. I think I'll freak out thinking about what happened. So he tracked the sound to the museum and that was really how uh, he walked in there and said, you know, I'm so sorry to disturb you, but I know this sound, but I don't understand what is going on here. And, uh, <laughs> and they told him, it's an artist, he's here. And I, I came downstairs and, you know, he basically told me, like, listen, I'm coming back home, you know, like, uh, I'll be home. And December, Christmas, he called me from Lagos, like, you know, I'm back home. And, uh, I think that, it's safe that, to say there's not, not much art that has the, uh, the power to send people back I mean, that, that changed a lot for me because normally I was interested in how people that, know this, that don't know this sound connects or like perceive the sound when it's played in their cities, right? But for me now, it became interesting to see how people that know the sound react to the sound in a different space, like where they are not expecting the sound. So whenever, since then, whenever the sound came up, you know, when I'm working with the technical crew and <clears throat> just at the time we put on the sound, I always tell them, let's sit back and we can identify the Nigerians. So you will all sit back and soon the Nigerians will get off their bikes or like stop and like come up and you know what is going on here you know so, what do you think um for someone who's never been to lagos what are the most characteristic parts of the soundscape just all of the it horns, or the, the horns the horns the horns are quite um you know the horns are they're loud we don't have any um noise abation rules <laughs> you can use your horns as much as you can you know uh the louder the better um then um the the the, the language the voices right it's it, you know they pick that up when they're listening on the headphones you know but it was also interesting when I set up the sound in Cologne in 2010, and um, they broke the speakers, you know. <laughs> they broke the speakers? And they broke the speakers, they called the cops. Um, oh. Uh, yeah, yeah, but we had uh, The we local had the, population. Yeah, we had the right. Okay. But what I found interesting was this guy that came there every morning, this German guy, he drinks his coffee there, he just like soaks up the sound, and after a few days I had to like walk up to him, like, dude, what's going on with you here? It's like, yeah, this energy, man, like this, this stuff. I need this stuff before I go to work. It's like a drug. I need to. <laughs> so people react differently to it. But for like the people in Cologne, it was completely, you know, like hectic to their ears. And, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. One element that you use uh, crops up a lot in your work is, is the Danfo, right? Oh, yeah. What, what is the Danfo? Um, uh, the Danfo is, Dan the, the Dan is, um, is, um, is a Volkswagen transporter bus probably from the early 80s. Um, you know, it's mostly bought in Europe, shipped down to Lagos and painted yellow with two black stripes. You know, it's the main public transportation in Lagos for a long while, you know. And uh, if, you, if you look at uh, most photos, most paintings, most films shot on Lagos, the common denominator there is always this down for bus. So for me, it became, it became a signature of Lagos, this yellow bus with two black stripes. and. Um, most of my recordings were done in the bus stations, right? So this was my connection with the Danfo bus. Because you talk about the way that the, the Danfo conductors kind of map, yes, are mapping the city, like all, yes. all, like 
almost exactly, really, because we're like... Well, what they do, what they do is like they substitute, you know, the same way you're going to have visuals saying where the train or where the bus is going to, they do that, they do that orally. You know, we didn't, uh, the buses didn't have any visual saying the bus is going here. And uh, at the earlier points in these bus stations, it was quite chaotic, so there were no signs saying where the buses were going, right? So you had to listen to the, to the bus conductors. They call out the bus routes, like where the bus is going, that's how you know the bus you're going to get on. And when the buses navigate in through the city, they have to call out the stops. So I call that verbal mapping. They map the city with the, with, you know, with, with, with the, the, the um, their calls of these bus stations. And because of the, um, you know, the bus station is like this chaotic place filled with all kinds of sound, music, um, um, buses, horns, people, hawkers. It's a lot of sound going on there. So the bus conductors had to find a way they could, you know, like call out these routes uniquely. So it's like this rap freestyle going on nonstop and you know they play with their voices there. You're saying like, it's like a, like an oral marketplace, right? To, for, totally. Uh, for transport solutions. Totally, yeah. But that's what I found interesting because they they sort of um, they had to you have to stand out. You have to be unique. You have to be heard. And uh, in many ways like Lagos made me a sound artist. Lagos taught me sound, Lagos taught me how to listen, Lagos taught me how to record, Lagos taught me how to think sound. You know. So then, interestingly, given also um, some of the shape for the forum talks and talking about uh, almost the cue that we were given about talking about the idea of sound as a locus for you know, resistance, whether it's through music or sound art. But when you then left Lagos, because you, you then um, you won a residency, the DAD residency, to go to Berlin in 2014, I think, right? Yeah, 2014. And then, so you said when you went there, actually there was a really big shift... <laughs> in your work because you weren't in Lagos anymore. So how did not being in Lagos, what happened to your practice? Because then it actually does become <laughs> maybe more of a discernibly political dimension, though I don't think it's, I think it's too, way I, too reductive to describe the work ex as exactly, political. You know. <laughs> but, but there is a bit of a shift. Could you tell us um, about what that was? Moving from Lagos to Berlin was like going from a 1,000 decibels to 100 decibels, right? So... Um, there was nothing for me to record in Berlin when I moved to Berlin. It's, I'm not going to record just birds. I did that a little bit. And um, <laughs> what I, the only thing I found interesting and I recorded for a while is like navigating through the metro. You know, it's this automated machines calling out <coughs> the names of the stop against what That's I was recording. That's interesting. Against the Yeah, yeah, against the downfall. Wow. But being in Berlin and finding nothing to record. I started looking at archives. I was that what was that what was that moment like when you suddenly realized was it a bit deflating just going on? No, 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 no. It wasn't actually it wasn't. It no. wasn't. And I, like my background is graphic design. I sort of like uh, thought more visual and, and was it conscious? I wouldn't even say it was conscious, you know. Um, but I became more interested in working with composers, working with choirs, working with uh, found sounds in the archives. Berlin is this city it's a city of music. There are a lot of composers, electronic music. I, I, I was already interested in electronic music, but being in Berlin sort of moved that to a different level. So I became more interested with collaborations with composers, you know, but I still kept that Lagos touch. Like, I'm like, okay, we have this conversation through sound, using sounds of Lagos, and we create something new out of that music, whatever it is to listen to. But bottom line, I was more interested with you know, not recording. I wasn't recording anymore. I was more like working with composers. And, and your first big project was called Song of the Germans, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was from Venice 2015. Yeah, yeah. So, it was, so it was it was your proposal for the, the Venice Biennale, which yeah. was then included in, in, the, uh, in the curated show in the Arsenale. Yeah, yeah. And what, what was the piece? What's in Simon um, Germans? I, I think I have to start with, you know, traveling is different from um, when you live somewhere, right? When you're traveling, you really don't get to experience so much as when you're living there. I'm not even going to use the word migrants or immigrants. I'm, I'm going to stick to expatriates. So like <laughs> being, a, being an expatriate abroad, like many of us Africans, but you know, they will always call us migrants and immigrants. And when they come to Africa, they're expatriates. So we're expatriates too, you know? So um, being an expatriate in Germany, you know, sort of exposed me to what it meant to be black in Europe, you know, like you hang out with other black people, other Africans, you go to African restaurants, you know, it, it, you also realize you're not just going there to eat, you're also going there to just have this kind of uh, community that you can relate to, right? But, you know, it's all this question of, you know, identity, citizenship, like who is German, who is not German, who is European, who is not European. You know, you're going to have a, Africans, second generation, their parents, you know, naturalized as Germans, and mm -hmm. they had their kids there. They are black Africans, but they are Germans. You know, like they are blacks, but they are Germans. They only know to speak German. You know, they will still have this question like, uh, "Where are you from?" You know, like, uh, "Okay, or oh, you speak German perfectly, or you read German actually." So that kind of inspired that because what I did for Venice Biennial was um, I took I took the German national anthem and I translated it into 10 African languages. And we also wrote the score for that, and it was performed. You know, it's a, it's a 10-channel sound <coughs> installation that is programmed to perform over 50,000 times. So the computer selects what starts, what 50,000 configurations yeah. of how it can it's, play. It's yeah. almost endless, right? So the computer kind of selects what language starts first, and the ones that How did Germans it. react to that? I mean, did you play it in German? Presumably that's played I mean, like, you know, It's in your show in Baden-Baden, is it? It's going yeah. to be in Baden-Baden, yeah. Right. But, um, I, you know, like, I, I remember, like, my assistant then was like, you know, dude, I don't know what you're doing, but, you know, we don't really... <laughs> We why, don't really why? do this whole national anthem thing, you know, we're oh, a big touch, you know, it's a big yeah, touch sure. of stuff there. But the first time uh, it was performed, we were in this um, radio station somewhere in East Berlin. Amazing space, beautiful space, and um, my assistant was almost crying. Like, he had to call me out and, like, I never knew our anthem was this beautiful, you know. Like, it was done in 10 African languages and it sounded really good. There were mixed reactions, to be, to, you know, to be honest, but they loved it. The government bought the piece. <laughs> I mean, well, that's a, that's a good sign. Yeah. Um, what do you, I mean, when you, presumably the work was described as, you know, pol political in some sense by local critics. I mean, how did you, do, you know, do you have any, do you, what's your relationship, if any, with, say, a tradition of uh, protest songs or political resistance through... Through music um, on the African continent specifically. I mean. I've not, I've not, I've not done, I've done researches, but not, I've not really finished the works I'm doing on that. But you know, growing up and hearing, um, you know, being in a protest situations and hearing um, <coughs> all kinds of um, chants. Yeah. Music, you know, when, when we talk about protests and uh, sound or, or protests, um, um, it's, really, it's, it's really through music, right? 
You know, you just realize music becomes this, music becomes this weapon. It becomes this weapon of galvanizing. It becomes this weapon of, you know, like uh, pushing solidarity. And for us Nigerians, when in 2012, we did the Occupy Nigeria, when we are trying to kick out the government after the whole thing in Egypt, it was really around music. It was really around this whole... Sorry, for the context. So after, so what was the, what was the immediate political cause for the, for the movement? Uh, well, it was this whole situation where the, they increased the prices of uh, petroleum products and that adversely increased the prices of food. Of everything else. Of everything else. So people were, you know, like, we thought we could pull the Egyptian stunts. You know, but um, what was interesting, what was very interesting during this period was music played an important role in galvanizing people, in bringing us together. You know, and, I, and that's what I will credit to Fela Kuti. You know, Fela had, Fela is long dead, but most of the songs he released in the 80s, a very big one that featured prominently during this whole situation was uh, Suffering and Smiling. You know, it's basically talking about how you are suffering and just like still being uh, cool, like smiling and not doing anything about it really. And um, the, this particular track was very, very popular during these, um, during these uh, protests. And there were, there's, there's also this particular track called Nigeria Jaga Jaga, like Nigeria is like uh, wrecked. And I remember when it was first released, it was all like a bit questionable, but it's also played an important role in galvanizing people because now we found <coughs> a common cause through music, right? And it was also kind of entertaining in, in, in that sense, you know? And that kind of- When you say common cause, you're referring to who coming together? Yes, uh, like everyone, the masses. Just it's, not, it's not because Nigeria, Nigeria we're very, very divided. Like, sure, you know, it I'm runs saying. through tribal lines, religious lines, you know, but uh, football and this protest kind of like change, change all that. Like, it, it was I mean, not about so tribe what, I mean, is there, I mean, we talked um, a few times about it, but the um, songs that were associated with the Biafran War and the Nigerian Civil War in the 60s, because you said there was, there was there's a tradition of, of Igbo songs that come out of that conflict that you've certainly looked at. Yeah, I mean, there, there was, I, I, I kind of went doing a research and before the Biafra War, actually, in 1929, was uh, about women riots, and this was uh, in the it was in the southeast, south south Nigeria. You know, the market women. This was during the colonial time, right? The they wanted to raise the taxes, so the, the market women. The, the Brits wanted to increase the taxes. The Brits on. and the Nigerian courts. So the market women came together, and said, "No way!" You know, they basically kicked, you know, kicked against this. Mm. And uh, but what, what I found interesting during this research was a, a lot of chants were developed then, but it was really on the go. You know, they were making up this music uh, according to the situation. So it was this kind of freestyle thing where you use this call and response. You know, you, you took what the context is and made something out of it that people, you, call, you made this call and people responded to and it. And was there a direct link between, between the songs and just the, you know, the songs that emerged then and then... And so, then, and then the Biafran. Then no, no, no. But in that, you know, what, there was there's this there's this very um, there's there's a very there's a very um, famous uh, chant song that is used during protests in Nigeria, used during football matches. Is this kind of intimidating chant? And um, it's um, it's it it was more. I saw that in the album. There's this collection that I have, uh, the war songs, the battle songs of Biafra. 
and this particular track was there. It's a famous track called Nzobu Nzobu Enyimba. It means like stamping. It's called the Elephant Crush in English, right? Um, I need to give him the code for each one. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. So, um, are you about to play us? What are you about to play us? Um, I'm in this, this piece. Okay. Uh, it's three. So can you t tell us exactly what we're listening to now? Oh, yeah. Well, it's I mean, in English, it's called the Elephant, uh, elephant Crush, but okay. it's... I mean, it's this repeated chant, and um, it's, it's really about like uh, crushing the elephant. The elephant is this big animal, you know, but it's this kind of chant that will be used to motivate you into action, right? And it's used to galvanize the crowd. So this was from the Biafra album, and it was, or they, they specifically sang it also to motivate themselves. Like, we are tiny, but we can crush these bigger uh, Nigerians, you know? And um, since then, this sort of became um, a chant you were gonna hear in protests. You're gonna hear in football matches. It, it became part of the environment, kind of not just in the eastern part of Nigeria, but also across the nation. You know. Well, one one interesting thing, obviously, about sound specifically as a medium, um, which becomes in a, in a way a abstracted and actually highlighted when it's when um, you know, sonic forms are presented in an art context, is is obviously how leaky or insidious or expansive the sound is. You know, just like your stories of, the, of uh, Lagos soundscapes being broadcast in Helsinki or in Cologne, or here even, where I think it's quite beautiful because you can hear the high pitch of the of the Oja flute really quite far into the fair, which is really nice. Is is just that obviously, you know, it's it's hard. You can't contain it unless you put it in soundproof rooms. Yeah. yeah. Which is which, is if you think about the political dimension of a medium, of of you know, it's a, it's an obvious point, but one worth underlying is that you know that particular aspect of sound is is where a lot of its you know political possibilities resides is that you can't you know it's you can't hard contain to, it. you hard to contain basically. it's hard to contain it's also it's also very easy to broadcast you know and um an interesting and also an interesting piece or an interesting sound in that relation south africa you know when it comes to protest song protest music protest chants south africa is really like a... There's a tradition that goes There's back a tradition, more, you know, like you see years, them, yeah. you see them, that, you know, people will think, oh, you're <clears> dancing <throat> during this, you know, like you're having a good time, but it, no, but really they are like, uh, you know, they, they, are, they, are, they are like motivating themselves, galvanizing themselves. And there's this, there's this, uh, the Toy Toy, it's a very famous chant around that whole apartheid era, right? And um, I think I should play that to you. Yeah. Um, the toy was really something here. It was like a parade ground drill of infantry or foot soldiers, um, as though they were holding a weapon and uh, marching and alternatively hopping and jumping on the spot, but with a beautiful rhythm and lifting their hands up and down and almost marching on the floor with a tremendous drumming motion, but not in the... The, the, the way of, uh, let's say, a Western army. 
but uh, in, in um, a hop and a step and a hop and a step. And it certainly has origins in uh, the war dancing of the, 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 the past. And these fighters came back and they joined in with the people and the influence was very strong. It was a very fertile ground for us in South Africa in the 80s. And people very quickly took it up and began to do this toy toy in the 80s in our, our mass demonstrations in the country. But in the camps, it was a wonderful way of keeping fit. It's, it's a bit of a jump to go from there to your commission um, <laughs> here. But the, um, uh, you have, you have uh, talked about um, uh, some of the political dimensions of, of this piece, but Abu Dike is you've got three main elements in, in, in the work. Yeah. Um, and just so, so people can maybe go and experience that with um, a bit more of an insight from you. Could you tell us what the, the main elements of the work are? Um, it's, I mean, the main piece is really this flute, the Oja. The Oja, it's, uh, it's, uh, the most popular aerophone in the music, in the Igbo musical ensemble, right? You're going to hear it almost in every Igbo musical ensemble. And it's used to, like, um, drive performances. It's used to encourage the singers. It's also used to communicate. And, um, for those that hear the, that hear the language, you know, you, you can, you can actually play text on that, right? So, but for oh, you, me, because you, you, um, in what in what sense can you play text? On it? You mean it's like, well, you have to hear the language. Like okay. you know, they, they, they can take they can take situations, they can take um, stories, and play with the flute, right? But you need to. I'm not I'm not a, I'm not a I'm not an expert on it yet. Yeah. But um, yeah, I'm kind of studying it at the moment. But um, you know what I found in why I actually went in the line of this piece is, you know, around the continent. Nigeria, let me speak about Nigeria. There's this whole uh, kind of cultural renaissance going on. I don't know if that's the right word, but I also made that connection with um, Kwame Nkrumah's African personality theory, right? You know, growing up in Nigeria, you probably went to parties, clubs, and um, you're going to hear just American tracks throughout the hours you spend in the club. You know, but it's interesting now, I go into Nigerian clubs and... Um, you probably not hear anything outside. Uh, you not hear anything Western, like uh, American or or European. So we started singing our songs. We started, um, you know, rapping in pidgin. Also, the indigenous language. We started rapping in these languages. But you know, most of the beats were still electronic or kind of influenced by the rap songs and from the U.S. But what I found interesting in recent times is also how they started like incorporating completely you know, the traditional instruments into their music. And that was mind-blowing for me. I did a, I did a commission, uh, I did a commission <clears throat> three years ago, and that led me into researching on traditional instruments for this particular piece. And it's something I always wanted to continue. But hearing this uh, music released in the last six months, one year, that we are done 
uh, mostly with traditional instruments motivated me to create this piece. So it's a, it's a flute piece, mostly the auger, and there's this chant. You know, we, we Igbos or Africans in general, we have this oral tradition and, you know, these chants are sort of like life force to the music. It's, it like pushes this music. So this piece is a praise piece in the sense with the, with the way the flute is being played and also what this chant is saying. Ibubedike means glorious warrior, but it's a praise name more like. I'm, I, I like the idea of calling it that because it's, it aligns with the piece. It's all about praise, you know. So you hear the, you hear the voice doing the chants, you hear the flute, and there are now like little bit elements from historical speeches from 1964 founding of the OAU. Kwame Nkrumah is there, of the course. African Union. From the African Union, Organization of African Union, Union, Union before they changed okay. to the African Union. Um, uh, Halle Selassie and uh, Milton Obote. I just took a little They're bit of all excerpts. In that, yeah, yeah. Just a little bit of excerpts there, but the main force is the, is the flute and the chants. Okay, be before we wrap it up, so we started um, with you as a description, with a description of you as a pioneer of um, audio art in the African continent, but, but now you're taking a new direction in your work and you're a pioneer of alcohol art, aren't you? So, beer art. Beer art. So, so you recently, as part of the documentary thing, you released... Um, you released a, a beer called Sufferhead, which you had brewed, yeah. which, if, I, if I've uh, got it right, it expresses the experience of being a black man in Europe in beer form. Uh, is that right? Well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, a big, it's a big project. It's, it's a, the, uh, the beer part is just an entry point into yeah. what the project is all about. But, you know, living in Germany, it's a beer country, right? And um, I appropriated their culture, you know. What, what Sufferhead is, is, you know, I, I got into the craft beer scene. I found it more interesting than arts, to be honest. And, um, but I, I can't just uh, spend all my time brewing beer. I had to find it an intersection. So I got into the craft beer scene and realized that I can actually flip this idea. You know, like I, I can continue my, my uh, uh, work on migration with uh, beer brewing. You know, in Germany, there's something called Reinheitsgebot. Reinheitsgebot is this uh, purity law in, that came out in, nine, in 1516, you know, basically deciding what is beer and what is not beer, right? And um, what I found interesting about Reinheitsgebot is that it was supposed to be, it was supposed to protect the bakers. So you are only allowed the, to... The, the, the bakers, bakers, yeah, the guys right. making beer and stuff. You're only allow, allowed to uh, um, make beer with yeast, barley, water, and, <coughs> and um, hops. So you couldn't use wheat and other grains. Oh, right. But if you dig deep into Reinheitsgebot, it's also what the Bavarians used to protect their beer because beer from northern Germany had other ingredients. So it was this kind of monopoly thing, right? right. Okay, so let's. Bavarian. So it, you know, and then you can connect that to what I was saying about citizenship: who is true <coughs> European, who is true German, and who is not. So craft brewing is contrary to Reinheitsgebot. Right. So because they can't control, it's not. You, well, it's not about control. They will not really call it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. it's really about like just people in their you know funking up the beer and do doing whatever you want, and it's not pure. What yeah. is considered pure is still beer. But if I throw in chili, if I throw in a so, so what are the characteristic tastes? Well, for of me, the, you know, for me, uh, I, for me, the whole concept is developed. You look at the bottle; it's completely black. You know, we are talking about melanin here, and in Germany, when you talk about beer, they prefer the blonde pale beer. So this is like the Schwarzbier, beer, which is black. So you okay. you play with those semantics, right? So, and the population of beer and, and, too. And taste-wise as well. Taste-wise I mean, too, has chili. chili yeah. There's chili in the beer because uh, for us Africans, what we complain every time about European food is 
there's no chill, there's no heat in this food, you know. So this became like a common uh, uh, stuff. And um, so the beer is strong, which is also another stereotype, you know. And to 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 create a strong beer, you calculate that with the ABV. So all the beers are above eight percent, and uh, the beer has a thick foam head. And um, what else? Um, <laughs> but what I what, no, but what, what I basically what I basically what I what I basically do with the beer is. I stick to the idea that the physical aspect of the beer stays the same, which is like the migrant. You go somewhere, you never change, but you, sure. you imbibe this local cultures and language. And, and the beer bottle is completely matte. You can't even see the beer, but that also connects to this whole idea where I'll get treated for the color of my skin and not for what I have here. So the beer starts with the concept of researching the local food taste of the Africans living in the region where I'm brewing the beer. So for Documenta, it was the it was the Ethiopians. So it's changed, so it changes, it changes, it changes, it changes. The London so. edition will be different. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's it sticks it sticks to certain rules, which is the physical aspect staying the same, but the flavor now depends on what the food taste and food culture is. But the, my point is. I make this beer, it's like creating a product. If you make a product, you have to advertise a product. So the work actually is in the, the, the adverts we create for the beer. So the beer is just an entry point into a broader conversation of uh, migration. We look forward to, uh, <coughs> excuse me, tasting that later. Um, <laughs> but um, if, uh, if anyone wants to go and listen to Emika's work, as I said, there are, it's playing in two places here in the stamp stairs where the Ebube uh, DK is, and then the Lagos Soundscapes is on the second floor, on the first floor, sorry, in uh, the Modern Forms room. And lastly, um, there's one piece, an amazing piece we didn't talk about, because I think we've run out of time, called The Way Earthly Things Are Going, which is the first piece of Emeka's that I experienced, which was playing, was part of uh, the Athens iteration of Documenta. It's an amazing piece. Happily, the Tate will be showing it in December in the Tate Tanks. I think that's opening on Monday, the 18th of December. If anyone's interested, we're going to be doing a talk on that morning, breakfast very early, 9 a.m., Monday, the 18th of December. So I hope you also go and experience that. But, Emeka, thank you for the commission. Thank you Thanks, for the talk today. That's fantastic. Thank you. Do you want... Um, are we doing questions? No. We're not doing questions. Okay, no questions. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>